The title of this morning's message is The Faith of Abraham the Believer. This morning I want to continue to talk to you about Abraham the Believer and how God's grace produced faith in Abraham and how at last Abraham demonstrated that he was indeed a true believer, a man of faith and faithfulness. In Galatians 3.9, in the New American Standard, it says this, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. I chose this version because it specifically calls Abraham a believer. <laughs> By calling Abraham a believer, it implies that first and foremost, Abraham believed God. In other words, Abraham took God at his word. And this is exactly what it means to have faith, to be fully persuaded in our heart by the evidence God provides us. He doesn't say believe without evidence. His Holy Spirit and his word are the evidence <laughs> that we need for our hearts to become fully persuaded. Now, Abraham, he didn't have a scripture to consult. <laughs> He didn't have something where he could go to and let the word of God speak to him and be, he could be persuaded. We can. That is exactly what we do. It is like that song about, you know, break every chain. You see, if I think my answer is going to come, then it's always out in front of me. But if we go to the word, it says it's already come. The answer is already here. I start from the victory, not trying to get victory. Trying to get victory is exhausting. <laughs> but when we have faith, faith enables us to take hold of what's already provided by God's grace. So Abraham, what he had, the way his faith came about, was through his experiences with God. Now, as we saw from the first part of Abraham's story that I ministered last time, Abram, his name at the time, hadn't yet grown in his faith in God, his trust in God, to the point that he actually trusted God completely, or in every situation. Abram lied to the king of Egypt in an effort to protect himself from being killed by the Egyptians who might want to kill him in order to take his beautiful wife. Of course, God comes to his rescue, and it all turns out okay. Not because of Abram. <laughs> but even after God has threatened Pharaoh in order for Sarai to be returned to Abram, we don't see God scolding Abram for his behavior. That's because this relationship isn't about Abram's behavior. The relationship is about faith. Abram is learning that he can actually trust Yahweh God in every situation. Certainly thereafter, Abram asks Yahweh God a question. Where is this offspring you promised? <laughs> How do I know that this will actually come to pass? And God answers Abram by taking him outside of his tent and telling him to count the stars. Can you count all the stars? No. <laughs> it's impossible to count all the stars. He says, count them if you can. Because as real as those stars are, so are your descendants. And as far as God is concerned. And Abram finally believes in his heart that God is true. And God imputes, legally transfers, right standing 
righteousness to Abram through his faith. And to establish the truth of God's promises in Abram's heart, God makes a covenant with him, specifically a grace covenant. Abram prepares the sacrifices, and then God puts him into a sleepy little trance, and then God and God show up as a fiery furnace and a smoking oven, and they walk in the midst of the covenant pieces and make covenant with themselves on behalf of Abram. Abram understands covenant. He knows what it means to be included in a grace covenant. It means that God himself, God and God, they're going to do everything that needs to be done in order for the promises to come to pass. But God kind of took a long time. <laughs> after about 10 years or so, after Abram watches God cut covenant on his behalf, that's a long time for a child. When is this baby coming? <laughs> after about 10 years, Sarai, Abram's wife, has a brilliant idea. We can make the promise come. <laughs> she couldn't have children, but her maid could. So she gives Abram her Egyptian maid as a secondary wife in the hopes that Hagar, her maid, will give her a son. After all, God hadn't said anything about Sarai having a child, only Abram. And so, of course, Hagar conceives, and then Sarai is jealous, mad, and mean. <laughs> so then Hagar runs away, and then God has to convince her to go back. That's the God who sees, and to submit herself to her mistress. But while she's away from home, <laughs> she has an encounter with the God of Abram. Why does God do this? After all, she's really just a slave. She's a woman and a slave. Why would she be important to God? She, the truth is, she lives in a blessed home. Everything Abram owns has been already blessed to prosper, and that includes Hagar. <laughs> Abram happens to own her. <laughs> so God shows up by a well in the desert, and he talks to her, and he talks her into going back home, because that's where she is blessed. So he talks her into going back and doing what she knows she really should be doing and what is best for her. She is a slave. It's best to be in a house that is blessed by the Almighty God. And we see this in starting in Genesis chapter 16, beginning with verse 7. The angel of the Lord. When you see the word Lord, it means Yahweh. That's his, God's personal name. <laughs> Lord is a title. Yahweh is his name. So the scripture always says his name, but we don't see it because it's hidden behind this title. So the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring in the desert on the road to Shur. Hagar, servant of Sarai, he asked, where are you coming from and where are you going? And she answered, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of Yahweh told her, you must go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. And the angel of Yahweh also told her, I will greatly multiply your offspring. You will be too many to count. Oh, here you go. Oh, here's a prophetic word. Look, you are pregnant. <laughs> and you are going to give birth to a son. And the angel of Yahweh continued to say to her, You will name his name Ishmael. Because Yahweh has heard your cry of misery. Now this part isn't really all that fantastic, but it's still true. He will be a wild donkey of a man. 
<laughs> He'll be against everyone and everyone will be against him. He will live in conflict with all of his relatives. So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. God who sees. Because I have truly seen the one who looks after me. That is why the spring is called the well of the living one who looks after me. God is the God who sees. And this was between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar eventually gave birth to Abram's son. Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael for Abram. Now, through Hagar, Abram and Sarai also received the revelation that Hagar had, that the Yahweh God of Abraham was also the God who sees and hears. In fact, none of them would ever forget it <laughs> because that's what they called Abram's son. God hears. That's what Ishmael means. So for the next 13 years, every time someone called for Ishmael, they understood that God, the up close and personal Yahweh God, was also the God who both sees everything and hears everything. Imagine calling for your son and always hearing, God hears, God hears, come here, God hears, God hears, where are you? God hears. That's what he heard his whole life. And they were supposed to hear it. They were supposed to understand every time they called their son, God hears. Now, we don't hear anything from Abram or about his family for about the following 13 years. <laughs> and as far as we know, God was quiet towards Abram between the ages of 86 and 99. Then suddenly, one day, Yahweh God appears to Abram, and he wants to remind Abram of who Yahweh God is, what Yahweh God can do, and what Yahweh God wants Abram to do. We find this in Genesis chapter 17. I have it for you in the Names of God version because I want you to see his names. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh the covenant-keeping God, the up-close-and-personal covenant-keeping God, that was his covenant name. Yahweh appeared to him and said to Abram, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. There is nothing that the God Almighty can't do. So God reveals himself to Abram. Not only is he a covenant-keeping God, but he's an almighty God. Not a mighty God, but the almighty God. Nothing he can't do. So then he says, now that you know that I am El Shaddai, this is what I want you to do. Live in my presence with integrity. The King James says it this way, walk before me. See my face before you. Another picture for Abram to see. See me before your face everywhere you go. I am the God who sees everything. I am the God who hears everything. And I want you to keep my face before you. Understand that I am God Almighty. See yourself living in my presence before my face. And then God says, I want you to live with integrity. Now see, up until this point, we haven't seen God in any way reprimand Abram. And he's not doing it here either. He's just saying, now that you know, <laughs> I have all the power. I want you to live according to that truth. I want you to live in integrity. The King James says that it means also to be blameless or perfect. 
And when we read that in the King James Version, perfect doesn't mean perfect. <laughs> it means complete. It means mature. He's not telling Abram, I want you to be perfect from here on out. He's saying, no, no, no. I want you to be complete. I want you to be mature. So God basically tells Abram, I have everything you need to walk with me in integrity. Trust me, not yourself. It goes on in verse 2. I will give you my promise, and I will give you very many descendants. Immediately, Abram bowed with his face touching the ground. And again, Elohim spoke to him. Here's another name. We have Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. We have El Shaddai, the almighty God. And now we have Elohim, the plural God. We know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They didn't know. <laughs> but we do, because that is the creator name. So God is revealing himself to Abram. I'm a covenant-keeping God. I'm an almighty God. And I am the creator God. And he says, my promise is still with you. <laughs> he doesn't even tell him he shouldn't have had Ishmael. <laughs> he says, my promise is still with you. You will become a father of many nations. So your name will no longer be Abram, which meant exalted father, but Abraham, the father of many because I have made you a father of many nations. I will give you your descendants. Many nations and kings will come from you. I will make my promise to you and your descendants for generations to come as an everlasting promise. I will be your creator God and the God of your descendants. I'm also giving this land where you are living, all of Canaan to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will be your creator God, Elohim. Elohim also said to Abram, you and your descendants and generations to come are to be faithful to my promise. This is how you are to be faithful to my promise. Every male among you is to be circumcised. All of you must be circumcised. That will be the sign of the promise from me to you. For generations to come, every male child who is eight days old must be circumcised, whether he is born in your household or he is bought with money from a foreigner who is not related to you. Every male in your household or bought with your money is to be circumcised without exception. So my promise will be a sign on your flesh, an everlasting promise. Any uncircumcised male must be excluded from his people because he has rejected my promise. This is still part of Yahweh God establishing Abram's heart in covenant because Abram didn't have anything else to consult. All he had was the personal relationship. I think about how often I go to the Word and say, God, talk to me. I need to know what you're saying to me. I need to know what the Holy Spirit is, is, wants me to know. I go to the Word all the time. Abram didn't have that. He had to wait for God to show up. So God is trying to convince his heart about who he is. God and Abram are covenant partners. And just like an engaged young lady expects a ring on her finger, as a token of the promise. So God wants a token in Abram's body. <laughs> it's the sign that he has accepted God's promise. And the sign that God requires is the removal of a little bit of flesh in a very sensitive area. <laughs> this is the symbol that is to constantly remind Abraham that the fulfillment of these promises are not a work of his own power and strength. It's not of flesh. 
His natural flesh is as good as dead. So this is a miraculous work of God's hand because 90-year-old ladies and 100-year-old men do not have babies. <laughs> they just don't. This is the promise from El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And this is an important part of covenant, the sign. The sign is the evidence that he was part of the covenant family. This is one of the reasons the Jews tried to impose circumcision on Gentile believers in the New Testament as being required to actually be saved. Jewish believers understood that Abraham was the first to believe and receive that particular sign or token of the promise and that to refuse the sign was to refuse the covenant. They just didn't realize we had a different covenant. <laughs> Thankfully, our sign of the covenant is the Holy Spirit. He is the only evidence of our salvation. It isn't even baptism. Baptism only verifies what's already done. It's not a sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant is the Holy Spirit. So we don't actually need an outward circumcision as a sign because God has already circumcised our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Also, it was commonly understood that when cutting a covenant with someone, that there was always a permanent mark left in the body of the covenant partner. Circumcision leaves a scar, so to speak. So the circumcision was a permanent reminder of God's covenant promises and faithfulness. It was meant to assure Abraham that he was indeed in covenant with El Shaddai, and he had the covenant mark to prove it. Isn't it interesting that Jesus retained his crucifixion scars in his glorified body? It was helpful, first of all, in the disciples being able to believe it was him. His glorified body was so different, his disciples didn't recognize him. And it wasn't until he said, here are the signs of the covenant. Here are the permanent marks that prove that we are in covenant. But it was also the proof of what he's done for us by going to the cross. His scars are the physical evidence of the new covenant cut in Jesus's body. His scars aren't there to assure himself that our sins are gone. They're there to assure us that as our covenant partner, he bears in his body the scars that prove that he has accomplished everything that was needed in order to secure our salvation and bring us into his covenant family. So for Abraham, circumcision was that permanent reminder that he was no longer his own. He was now part of a covenant family. And as a covenant family member, God exchanged names with them. It's the same way as a bride who usually takes her husband's name. God gives his name to his covenant partners. Our covenant name is Jesus. <laughs> My name is Valerie Jesus. <laughs> we can just add Jesus right on the end of it because that's who lives in here. Valerie Jesus. That is our covenant name. We saw this in verse 5 when God tells him, I'm changing your name. You're not an exalted father anymore. Now you're a father of multitude. <laughs> and then he continues in verse 15 with Sarai. Elohim. What is Elohim? The plural, creator, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all working together. Elohim. 
said to Abraham, don't call your wife by the name Sarai anymore. Instead, her name is Sarah, which means princess. I will bless her, and I will also give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become a mother of nations, and kings will come from her. Now, what's interesting about this verse is that God uses his plural creator named Elohim. All three of them are involved in creation, and he's something he's still doing. He still creates. <laughs> El is the single form, but Elohim is the plural. And, of course, God represented in his fullness. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't, of course, get, get to know that, but we get the fun of being able to see it. So Elohim, creator God, the one who created the entire world through speaking, calling those things that aren't as though they were, speaks a new name to both Abram and Sarai. He recreates them, so to speak, by calling them by their new names. These new names reflect their new identities. So they had to start calling each other father of a multitude, <laughs> princess from whom kings will come, princess where are you? <laughs> they had to call each other these things. They understood that he changed their names on purpose. He wants them to see themselves differently. It's all about transforming their identity. So both Abraham and Sarah received part of God's name. Yahweh, the up-close-and-personal, covenant-keeping God, is the covenant name of God. So God chooses the H, because he's got two of them, <laughs> from his name, and he adds it to theirs. Abram became Abraham, and Sarai became Sarah. The H in Hebrew has the numerical value of the number five. And five is the number for grace. So we could say that grace... God's unmerited favor, his absolutely free loving kindness, was added to both Abram and Sarai. And they both became what God called them. Abraham became the father of nations, and Sarah became the princess from which kings would come forth. Now, all God wanted in return for this kindness was to be believed. Everything God did up until this time was done in order to convince Abraham <laughs> of God's faithfulness, power, and character. Abraham, even after he's been through the covenant process, even though God has changed his name, he still goes to Egypt again and lies to another king. <laughs> it worked out so well last time, why not do that again? And of course, God comes to the rescue again. He hasn't yet learned his new identity or the true character of the God he serves. God knows that it can take a lot of convincing in order to fully persuade a human heart. So God employs visual aids like stars in the sky and sand on the ground. He has reminders day and night that God is faithful. Then, God also used their names as reminders. Ishmael, God hears, God hears, God hears, come here, God hears. And Abraham, father of a multitude, come here. <laughs> Sarah, a princess from whom kings will come. Princess, princess, come here, please. <laughs> Even Hagar names a well after the God that she met, the well of the living one 
who sees me. So every time they go to the well, which is daily, God's name is speaking to them, persuading their hearts about who God is and what he has done. They are being persuaded that God knows them, sees them, hears them, and has promised them to be their covenant partner and fulfill his promises. That's a lot of persuasion. <laughs> but when the time comes for God to tell Abram about the coming of Isaac, he's actually surprised. Now, this happens just after Yahweh tells Abram to stop calling Sarai by Sarai and start prophesying, you are a princess, you are a mother of a multitude. That's what he's doing. He's actually prophesying, this is who you are. And it starts in verse 17. It says this, right after God changes their name, it says, Abraham immediately, Abraham bowed his face, touching the ground. He laughed as he thought to himself, can a son be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, have a child? Then Abram said to who? Elohim, creator? <laughs> Do I know who I'm talking to, the creator? <laughs> Why not let Ishmael be my heir? Why go through all this trouble of having another kid? I already got one. <laughs> and Elohim, creator God, says, no, your wife Sarah will give you a son, and you will name him Isaac. He laughs. They will forever know they laughed. <laughs> I will make an everlasting promise to him and to his descendants. I have heard your request about Ishmael. Yes, I will bless him, make him fertile, and increase the number of his descendants. He will be the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But I will make my promise to Isaac. Sarah will give birth to him at this time next year. God has a plan that reaches way beyond Abraham. And Abraham really doesn't understand what's going on at that particular time. But God has chosen, according to his own wisdom and power, to perform his promises through the son of promise not through the son of Abraham's own strength and impatience. I think we call that flesh. <laughs> Ishmael was not the heir God promised. Ishmael was the fruit of self-effort, not faith. And what does God want from him more than anything else? Faith. He wants both of them to actually trust him to keep his word, even if it's impossible, because he's a creator God. He's the almighty God. He's the covenant-keeping God. How could he not do what he said? So to help strengthen their faith in who God is, as God Almighty, and as the God who sees me, and the God who hears me, and the God whose face is always before me, and the God who is himself the creator of the universe, and who is also Yahweh, the up close and personally involved in everything in my life, God. <laughs> involved in everything in my life, God. That God comes to dinner. God comes to dinner because eating a meal together was also part of covenant making. It was part of reinforcing the truth that we are covenant partners. And truly, the only ones who ever ate at your table were covenant partners, covenant friends. This is yet another way for Abram and Sarah to be convinced. See, they know all of these traditions. This is how covenant works. 
So this is another way for God to convince them that he is actually going to do what he says he's going to do. So the pre-incarnate Christ shows up for dinner with a couple of angels. <laughs> Abraham has Sarah prepare the meal, and Abraham sets it before them. The men and the women didn't eat together. Sarah was in the tent. So while they're eating, God in the flesh leans over to Abraham, says, oh, by the way, where is your wife, Sarah? And he answers, well, over there in the tent. And then Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, said, I promise I'll come back to you next year at this time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Jesus purposely says this, knowing where Sarah is at. The scripture says Sarah happened to be listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, now that I've become old, will I enjoy myself again? What's more, my, my husband is old. <laughs> Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, can I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for who? Your covenant partner, the Almighty God. <laughs> that God, is anything too hard for Yahweh? I will come back next year at this time, and Sarah will have a son. Because she was afraid, Sarah denied that she had laughed. But Yahweh said, yes, you did. You laughed. <laughs> now, I personally don't think I was upset with Abraham and Sarah laughing when they heard about this promise coming to be fulfilled. It really is quite ridiculous in the natural. <laughs> it's entirely impossible for either of them to help God accomplish this. Neither of them can come up with another brilliant idea of how to make this happen. It's completely out of their realm of possibility. So, I think that one of the reasons that the pre-incarnate Christ came for dinner was for the express purpose of Sarah being able to hear the promise for herself. Nothing takes the place of hearing God for yourself. In verse 14, where it is translated, is anything too hard for Yahweh? It actually says any word. This is important. <laughs> is any word or is any promise too hard for the up close and personal covenant keeping God? The answer, of course, is no. But the translators did the exact same thing with the conversation that Mary had with the angel who told her that she would have a miraculous child. In Luke 1, 37 and 38, it says this, with God, nothing. It actually means no spoken word. The word there is rhema. <laughs> no spoken word shall be impossible. Why do we speak things? Because we are one with the creator God who creates things with words. He said, no spoken word shall be impossible. And Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. This distinction is important. I used to think God could do anything. Nothing is impossible for God. That's not what it says. Monkeys are not going to fly. <laughs> not unless God says they are. It has to be what God says for it to be able to come to pass. God fulfills his word 
to us, not our wishes, his word. Our faith is always supposed to be in God, the up-close and personal covenant-keeping God, and what he says, not just what we want or wish for. Abraham wanted and wished that Ishmael could be the promised heir. And God said, nope, it's not going to work that way. I fulfill what I say, and what I say is Sarah will have a son. So Sarah, just like Abraham, got to hear exactly what God had to say regarding her. And of course, in that time, women were not important. But here God goes out of the way to come to her, to tell her, this is my word and will for you. You need to hear it for yourself. And of course, she had the same exact response as Abraham. Laughter. <laughs> what? Old people like us having a baby? How wonderful and utterly ridiculous. <laughs> they believed, but it made them laugh with surprise. Old people having babies is funny. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but that is exactly what came to pass. God did what God said. Throughout Abraham and Sarah's journey with God, they came to know a lot about who this Yahweh God was. And it appears that they were, in fact, finally fully persuaded in their heart that God could do exactly what he said he would do. But there was another opportunity that awaited Abraham that would reveal a deeper understanding of who this Yahweh God was really like. It takes place in chapter 22 of Genesis, and it's the story of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. It's a big story. I'm not going to read it. <laughs> That's a whole other message. <laughs> so anyway, basically what happens is Abraham does exactly what he's told to do. This is new <laughs> for Abraham. <laughs> he had his own way of doing things. And here, God gives him an impossible thing to do. And he says, yes. It looks like the creator God, the almighty God, the covenant partner God has gotten through to Abraham. And he offers up his only son as a sacrifice. In Hebrews 11, it says this, beginning with verse 17, by faith. I put my own little explanation right there for you to see. What is it when we say faith? What are we talking about? We're talking about being fully persuaded in our heart that God is good and only good. Abraham knew that. This was a grace covenant. God never even got around to scolding him. <laughs> he said, everything you have is not because you're good. It's because I'm good. Faith says, I don't care how impossible it looks like on the outside. God is good and only good. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By the time Abraham offers up Isaac, Abraham knows his Yahweh God. 
He knows that he's a God of grace and goodness. Abraham knows his Yahweh God doesn't lie. In fact, he's a bit of a stickler about living in integrity. <laughs> so if Abraham is required to sacrifice Isaac, then Abraham knows that Yahweh God will absolutely have to raise him from the dead because Yahweh God will not and cannot lie, especially to a covenant friend. And in order to fulfill all the promises that he's made regarding Isaac, Isaac has to live. So it has, he's believing in the impossible. He's believing in resurrection. Abraham, being fully persuaded in his heart, came from God, revealing himself to Abraham over and over again. They were covenant friends. They were covenant family. So when the test came, Abraham did find out a couple of things. For one, he found out this God, this God who asked me to sacrifice my child, wasn't actually looking for him to sacrifice his child. You see, he wanted to show Abraham, you know those other false gods that are telling people to sacrifice their children on altars and put them in the fire? I'm not like that. <laughs> I am not like that. I want you to know that I only act in goodness and grace. I don't want you to sacrifice your children. He didn't know this before. <laughs> other gods, that was very common to sacrifice your own children in order to get God to like you. So one of the points is, I'm not like those other gods. He wasn't interested in his covenant partners and family members killing those who were most precious to them. Yahweh God was nothing like those other gods. Abraham knew. See, he knew religion. He knew that religion always demanded some kind of performance or sacrifice from his worshipers. I used to think if I sacrifice, God will be happy with me. No, God was already happy with me. <laughs> he wasn't trying to get stuff from me. People have sacrificed their children on the altars of ministry, on the altar of convenience. There's all different kinds of altars where people are sacrificing family. God never asked them to do that. Never. That's not the kind of God he is. <laughs> In pagan religion, the worshipers had to make themselves blessable are favored by their God. But Yahweh God never demanded something from Abraham in order for God to bless him. He had already declared, you are blessed and you can't get out of it. <laughs> you're blessed coming in and you're blessed going out. You can't get out of being blessed. Yahweh God supplied everything Abraham needed, including everything he needed to be completely persuaded that he too could live before God's face in integrity. Yahweh God supplied everything Abraham needed and then asked Abraham to walk in agreement with what was already true. I think Abraham learned that he himself had actually changed. He had grown and became mature. He became complete in his faith in Yahweh God. And he learned that he had actually become a man of faith and faithfulness without even trying. <laughs> Abraham didn't try to handle his situation according to his own understanding or his own power. He didn't lie to anybody to get out of sacrificing Isaac. <laughs> Abraham didn't try to lie 
as a way of getting out of the test. He didn't try to finagle. He didn't try to talk God out of it. He didn't do any of those things. He faced his test with complete confidence in his covenant-keeping partner, Yahweh God. After all, how could he not trust Yahweh God? Yahweh God is the Almighty God. He's the Elohim, the Creator God, who speaks things into being. He can speak a new kid into place. He's the one who hears me when I cry. He's the one who has me name my child. God hears. Just to remind me all the days of my life, my God hears. He's the living one who sees me and looks after me. He's Yahweh God, the up-close-and-personal covenant-keeping God. At the end of this test, Abraham gave Yahweh yet another name. <laughs> Yahweh Yira, the God who provides. And that's exactly what God did for Abraham. Abraham lays Isaac upon an altar, and when he actually starts to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him. He tells him that God himself knows Abraham's heart, and that he knows Abraham fears him. In other words, he honors and reveres God, and he finally trusts him no matter what. No matter how impossible something may look, I trust you. His God is the almighty God. His God is Elohim. He is the God who creates worlds and universes with his words. His God does the impossible for his covenant friends and family. His God is faithful and true and always does exactly what he says. Abraham finds that he has become a man full of faith and faithfulness, just like his God. He didn't back down and he didn't try to find a way around the impossible. He knew in whom he had believed. What I want you to see through this message is just how big our God is and just how faithful he is to his word. He does not lie. He cannot lie. He doesn't exaggerate. He is completely trustworthy. We can trust him with our hurts, like Hagar. We can trust him with our failures, like Abraham. <laughs> we can trust him to do the impossible, like Sarah. We can trust him when we don't understand what's going on, like Isaac. We can trust him to work within our relationships. We can trust him to open the eyes of our hearts and reveal himself to us. We can trust him to help us to fully persuade our hearts that we too can walk with our face before God and his face before us, fully persuaded and completely faithful. We too can have the faith of Abraham, the believer. Amen? Father God, I thank you. The word of God is filled with people just like us. <laughs> people who stumble and people who fall and people who are afraid and people who don't understand what's going on. And God, I don't know, but God, you do. And so, Father God, we thank you that you, you reveal yourself to us, that you are almighty. There is nothing above you. You are all-powerful. Nothing is impossible if you say that that is the truth. I thank you, God, for the written word, that you speak, you direct, you lead, you guide. Everything we need 
is in the Spirit and in the Word of God. Father God, I thank you that one Word of God will change our lives. It changes everything. Father God, open the eyes of our understanding when we're afraid and we don't know what to do, that we run to your Word. We run to the God who cannot lie. And we embrace your promises. And we take them for our own. We step into the reality that everything we need has already been provided. You've already given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything to be just like you. That's what Abraham learned to do. To walk with his God like his God. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.